Good morning, church. So uh, for those of you who may be a little bit newer, um, I am, uh, my name is Elliot Shorey. Um, I'm a pastoral resident or pastoral intern. I don't know what the heck I get called anymore. Um, but anyway, I'm, uh, it's, uh, it's my joy. I, I love to serve on uh, the team and to be able to uh, preach God's word. So we have been studying Joshua together in our series entitled, The Lord Will Fight For You. And today we're going to be uh, in chapter 2 of Joshua and meditate on the famous uh, account of Rahab and the spies. Uh, but first, I'd just like to ask in prayer for God's help over this sermon. God, we ask for your help today. Give us ears to hear your word. And help us to have hearts that receive the truth of this text, um, that exalt and say at the end, isn't God grand? Lord, help us to have smaller uh, eyes for ourselves and bigger visions of you. May you be exalted. May you be honored. May you be glorified in this church this morning through your word. Lord, Holy Spirit, please uh, be the one who speaks and move our hearts uh, to sing your praise. In your name I pray, amen. Okay, so uh, if you would, just open uh, your Bibles to Joshua, and we're going to read this historical account of how God has worked in saving sinners. And while we do, uh, let's pay the most careful attention um, to these next few minutes, as these are the infallible living words of God. Only be strong and courageous. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction." And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. 
For Yahweh your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by Yahweh that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when Yahweh gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly Yahweh has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. This is a famous biblical historical account. It gets referenced for a lot of reasons. Uh, as someone who loves a good discussion on biblical ethics, there is much I would love to teach on in terms of kind of how to carefully interpret biblical narrative, how to guard against thinking that just because a biblical character did something without reprimand in the text does not mean that God endorses that behavior or that that behavior is wise. Men, don't go into prostitutes' homes. <laughs> I'd love to talk of the ethics, or really lack thereof, of Rahab's lie and more. A whole sermon could be preached on the name Joshua and the implications that they sent spies. Um, and a whole sermon could be preached on, 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 the, on the word secretly. And a whole other sermon could be preached on the word shatim. And as a result, we could have more sermons out of verse 1 of this glorious chapter than we have allowed time for for the entire book of Joshua. But to focus on any of those things uh, would, with only one sermon on this chapter, would not do justice to the most important, the most significant impact and value this chapter serves in the book of Joshua. I, I say that at the outset to say that students of the Bible... Um, are bound to leave feeling that as, as, as though there has been much left on the table uh, from this chapter. But let it be our prayer 
um, that as we leave, we will have left it on the table, not because we have failed to eat, but because we have feasted and been well satisfied. So let us look at this text and say, as one commentator did from this text, isn't God grand? We're going to look at four basic things this morning. Um, I don't tend to rigidly follow an outline, so don't expect kind of clear announcing of moving from one point or another, but we will be looking at four basic things this morning. We'll be looking at the historical context, we'll be looking at the coming judgment, the faith of a prostitute, and the bolstered faith. So let us look first at the setting, the historical context which we find these Israelites in. So here we are, here the Israelites are, they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Israel is ready to claim their land. God has promised to be with them wherever they go. And Joshua 1.5 says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. I will not leave you or forsake you. He will be with them while they complete his kingdom work. This generation had heard of God's deliverance with many signs and wonders out of Egypt, of the parting of the Red Sea through which their parents had walked. They had heard of those things. They had experienced themselves the provision of water bursting forth from a rock and manna and quail daily just showing up for them to eat. All they had to do was kind of like step out the door, grocery shopping's done. God's past faithfulness and promises for the future that he would accomplish the work of giving them the land could have made them lazy or presumptuous. But here Joshua is in verse 1 sending spies. What for? Because even when God has promised to complete the work, he still looks for faithful action from his people. Let me say it again. Even when God has promised to complete the work, he still looks for faithful action from his people. Jesus will build his church, and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. But we still need to go into all the world with a message of repentance. Here at Risen Hope, we love celebrating that God chooses his people. They cannot resist his gracious call. But we still need to be faithful to proclaim the good news of his kingdom. No, God does not need us, as the book of Joshua clearly highlights repeatedly. But he does give us the privilege, the privilege of being used by him as the means through which his blessings flow to others. When I was younger, I really struggled with a substantially overinflated sense of self-importance. Um, I, to be honest, God is still purging it out of me day by day. I, but I had big visions for what I was going to accomplish in life and ministry. Uh, but one thing I've learned through life, uh, and the scriptures make abundantly clear, is that God does not need me. But he does call me to faithfully lay my hand to take prudent, wise, faithful action in whatever he has given me. And so does Joshua act. 
he sends the spies to take prudent action. But we also see that while he takes prudent action, he doesn't really take, or they don't really take very competent action. For though they were sent secretly, look at verse 1, Joshua sent two men secretly, they are found out in the very next verse. It was told to the king, men of Israel have come here tonight. They had one job. Let it illustrate for us the truth of what Mike said a couple weeks ago about the introductory lessons from Joshua, that we can only be strong and courageous as far as we are dependent and obedient. It won't be done by our strength or competency. Let it show us from the outset of Israel's excursions into the promised land that all that will follow in the book of Joshua will be able to be attributed will not be able to be attributed to their wisdom, strength, or prowess. The stage of the book of Joshua belongs to one. It is Yahweh's. May our small slice of the kingdom mission here at Risen Hope Church be dependent and obedient in such a way that the curtain call at the end of the play of our lives and existence will be filled with applause for one. It is these blundering men, and oh, I relate to their blunderings. It is these blundering men that come into Jericho, and they come into the house of a prostitute. Now look, the book of Joshua, quite frankly, contains some of the hardest content of Scripture for the natural man. Uh, The hardest to palate. The unregenerate, unsaved heart will chafe at the content of this book. But the one made alive by the Spirit will receive this as the most glorious news. When the first generation of Israelites from Egypt had all died, God gives his law again through Moses to the second generation of Israelites. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is if you've ever wondered why Leviticus and Deuteronomy repeat themselves. It is being given a second time to the second generation so that they might know uh, how they are to live and what their mission is. And so we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1, when Yahweh your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, And when Yahweh your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. And then in Deuteronomy 20, in verse 18, it says, But in the cities of these people that Yahweh your God has given you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. This was to be an extermination of judgment. This was a horrifying judgment on everything that had breath. All of their idolatry and immorality and wickedness was to be expunged from the land. This is their mission And it was a just judgment. 
And the reputation and renown of Yahweh's people had gone before them. Look more closely with me in your Bibles at verses 9 to 13. After Rahab had hid these spies and lied to protect them with great personal risk to herself, for had the king heard of her deception and treason, it surely would have meant her death, she comes to them and tells the spies of what she and her people have heard, and with her statement, we actually read the main point, the climax of the text. She says, we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh, your God, He is God. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She had heard of events from 40 years prior. 40 years. Remember, all those first generation Israelites that had come out of Egypt had died, except Joshua and Caleb, who were old men now. These events that Rahab had heard of uh, were before that she was born herself. For I don't know how long a prostitute's career is, but it can't be very long. And we know that she would, she would marry. We'll find out she will marry and bear children. Here is a young woman who had heard of events before her birth. Such was the fear of the power of Yahweh and the mission of complete destruction for his people's enemies, that the fear passed to the next generation. It's clear that the fear was not of the Israelites themselves, but of the God who fights for these people. These people all wandered around the wilderness for 40 years like a bunch of blundering idiots. It was not a fear of the people, it was a fear of their God. The God who fights to bring wrath upon the rebellious wicked and give everything to his children. We have heard how Yahweh dried up the water. She had heard of how the mighty Egypt had been beaten and how that final defeat of the Egyptians climaxed at the Red Sea parting. You see, no matter how strong Jericho's walls Was conquering those walls anything for a God that could make water stand up in walls? Egypt was the only superpower of the day. Sure, the walls had withstood the little tribal warfare that characterized the land of Canaan at that day. But they had heard of Yahweh on the move. And their hearts melted because his mission of judgment was clear. Kill all the perverse, wicked, pagan rebels. All who resist God resist goodness and beauty and love and bring their selfish wickedness into the world, and God will remove it in judgment. So here we have this pagan prostitute, this whore, She hears of this. She hears of a people whose God fights for them. She realizes that she and her father's family are in danger under the wrath 
of Yahweh, who will clear away the wicked and establish a kingdom for his people. And instead of hardening in her fear like Pharaoh with stubborn pride, she knows that there is only one way to be saved. She must cast herself upon the mercy of Yahweh and his people. And so she doesn't just relay the conquest that she had heard of, but she confesses faith. Look again at verse 11. Yahweh, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. This polytheistic pagan prostitute who lived in a culture where geographical deities were the norm. There were gods of the mountains and gods of the valleys and gods of this city and of that city and of the sun and of the crops is professing that there is only one God and he is God of it all. She is rejecting her previous faith and seeking to be known by his name. Look at the significance of look at the significance of what she's doing. She is professing the very words of Deuteronomy 4, 35 and 39 as her own. When Yahweh's people were being reconsecrated for lives lived for Yahweh, it says in Deuteronomy 4, to you it was shown. All the, all the miracles that Rahab also now cites, to you it was shown that you might know that Yahweh is God. There is no other besides him. Verse 39, know therefore today and lay it to your heart that Yahweh is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Rahab is quoting the covenant language through which God related to his people. They were to worship him alone and obey his law. And by professing this, Rahab is saying, may I be counted amongst your people. I want to be Yahweh's. He is God alone. And she demonstrated that faith through action. She chose to renounce her pagan gods. She chose to renounce her loyalties to Jericho and, and all at great risk to herself. And such is the call to us today. If we will be saved, we must count our lives as nothing and live for Jesus and his people. Even as Rahab looked back on the wrath of God on the Egyptians and perceived that perceived what it meant for her people, we can look back on how God judged the Canaanites and see what he will do again. You see, there is a judgment coming that will make the slaughter of the Canaanites look like child's play. Revelation tells us that Jesus is coming again, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God on all his enemies. Get this picture in your head. This image of a wine press in which is one in which someone steps into the wine press and steps on the grapes and squishes the grapes and the juices erupt. And all that juice flows down to the bottom and out through a stone channel where it is gathered and then made into wine. So this picture of Jesus treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God is a picture of him treading his enemies like grapes.
Revelation 19 says that Jesus has dipped his robe in the blood of his enemies. There's a judgment coming for every unrepentant sinner. And the anguish and the pain of that judgment will be eternal, a never-ending judgment against an eternally good God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And if you are one who checks the Christian box on religious identification forms, but knows nothing of sin, repentance of sin and living for Jesus, God's wrath is coming. Or maybe you're one that has never even claimed the name of Jesus. If so, beware, like these pagans in Jericho, you have one choice, repent or die under the wrath of the Almighty. You must reject your old loyalties to self and sin and live for the one who is the fountain of joy and goodness, the one who alone is worthy of worship. He is the God of heaven and earth, and there is no other. You see, though Joshua contains some of the hardest to palate content for the natural, unregenerate man, the main point of this text is that God is coming to redeem. At the outset of the conquest of Canaan, the first thing we see is mercy. It is to be the banner over all else that we read. Yes, the judgment is coming, but here at the beginning, there is an open invitation to all who do not harden their hearts against this truth that they might be saved and included in the abundant, gracious kingdom of Yahweh. For my brothers and sisters in faith here, let this be a fresh source of worship that God is in the business of saving and including repentant spiritual whores such as we were into his family. We prostituted our lives to the service of self and material prosperity and ignored God who is the source of all that is true and good and beautiful. Though we deserve to have our bodies crushed in the winepress of God's wrath because of our pride and our selfishness and our immorality and our lust and our rebellion, He saved us. You see, the name Joshua means the same thing as the name Jesus. It means Savior. Here we have an Old Testament foreshadowing of how God advances his kingdom. He advances it with an offer of mercy. He advances it with an offer of mercy to all who call upon his name and renounce their old allegiances and rebellious ways of life and will be found in him. No commentators seem to know whether to make much or little of the following. I don't think there's many coincidences in the word of God, though. But even as Rahab was saved from Egypt under a scarlet blood, even as Israel was saved from Egypt, 
Under scarlet blood painted in the doorpost, so Rahab was saved by the scarlet cord in her window, so must we be saved by the flow of scarlet crimson blood from Jesus' broken body on the cross, who came to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness as pagan rebels into his kingdom of light and life, and so by and does so by saying, though you deserve to be snuffed out, to be exterminated, I will allow my wrath that you deserve that came on the Canaanites and will come upon you if you remain unrepentant. I will allow that wrath to come upon me. I will bear your ju judgment. My life will be snuffed out for you. Oh, what a beautiful picture of humble, repentant faith we have here in Rahab, who proved her faith by delivering God's people and by so doing, identified herself with Yahweh himself. For when we are Yahweh's, we will love his people. For Jesus tells us that even as you have done unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done unto me. So if you are one that still needs to renounce old loyalties, if you are still living for yourself and your sin and your desires, let the open offer of mercy to spare you from the wrath to come be received with grateful repentance. Turn now. I plead with you, don't wait. If you have received this mercy through repentance, you've changed your loyalties and are seeking to die to your selfish ways and live for Jesus, and you have demonstrated faith in the God who promises to save those who would believe. God then moves from making his impending war against you and your perversions and turns and welcomes you into his family and people. Then he fights for you and promises that all the land will be yours. All of heaven and earth will be your inheritance. And your past story of sin and rebellion, he will celebrate as a testimony of his grace and power to change lives. He is not ashamed to be called your God or my God with all our disgusting selfishness. You see, we have words and phrases that insult and that we kind of filter out for our children in, in movies that mean son of a whore. Words that are meant to conjure up shame about our roots and past. They try to communicate and cut others down that you are worthless because of who you are and where you've come from and what you've done. And yet Jesus was unashamed to be called the son of this whore. For we see in Matthew chapter 1 that Jesus would come through Rahab's children. And every time the New Testament talks about her faith, the authors refer to her as Rahab the prostitute. As if we didn't know who they meant. She's the only Rahab in Scripture. You see, God saves and redeems sinners and washes them clean beneath the scarlet flow of his shed blood. And our pasts and our sins and our failures and even our continued struggles with these exist to testify of the one who changes prostitutes' lives and cleanses the untouchable leper and heals unclean women with flows of blood and who touches, cleanses, and redeems your life and mine. 
And if you are one who, by God's gracious calling on your life, has already been grafted into his family, let the message of this text cause you to worship. Let it cause you to worship him for his grace. If you are one who struggles with letting things of your past define you, more than the one in whom you believe, I encourage you to celebrate his grace toward you. You will get to be forever known as a man or a woman of faith in the God who approaches the unclean and lifts them from the mire of a swamp and gives them white robes of purity and righteousness. This is what we are dressed in. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And it is the faith of Rahab that God celebrates in Hebrews 11 and says, the world was not worthy of Rahab. And if you have the same faith, if you are in Christ, God's banner over you is the world is not worthy of you. As we celebrate this goodness, let us, like the spies in verse 24, have bolstered faith that as we approach our kingdom work in evangelizing and discipling the world, we will know that our God fights for us. Look at verse 24. Truly Yahweh has given all the land into our hands. He is the one who goes before us with an open invitation of grace. And he is the one who will endure, ensure that justice for every wrong will be done against the unrepentant. Let it cause us to have boldness in sharing the good news of the kingdom of heaven. Because Yahweh goes before us and will fight for us. The forces of darkness tremble before God's unstoppable kingdom. Satan and his demons are bound and limited while God's kingdom advances. And the gates of hell in the walls of Satan's kingdom stand as little chance of victory as Jericho's walls against God building his church. They will not prevail against him. Let us be strong and courageous, for our God fights for us.